0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series.
1: Stephen Kamala, uh, Stephen Armstrong, Kamala Masters have been coming since the early 90s, maybe 94, something like that, so about 13 years, but we missed them last year. so. It's really nice that, that they're back again. Um, they just finished the TCBC summer retreat that they've been leading all those years. It's a nine-day retreat. Now they're using the Christine Center. <coughs> probably more than a handful of you have, were there. I know Joanne, Naomi, was there, Sharon, and Christy. Why don't you raise your hand if you're on retreat this last week? Uh, and Diane was there, Marianne was there for the weekend. So I'm saying that in case you're interested in joining next summer, because they're already scheduled for next summer, right? Yes. Yeah. So you can do the weekend or the nine-day version. And uh, it's really great for the community to practice intensively like that. Stephen Kamler, are two of the more seasoned teachers here in this country. They regularly teach at IMS, one of the grandmother institutions in our Vipassana, Insight Meditation community here in this country. And they've also formed their own uh, Community on the island of Maui. They serve the local Vipassan uh, community there, and they're also building a small um, place for long-term retreat or long-term retreat practice on the island. They have a beautiful piece of property, about four or five thousand feet elevation, and uh, they're in the middle. Of, I, I sympathize with them. They're in the middle of figuring out how to make it all happen, both with uh, the local officials and the fundraising and all the things that go into. Uh, creating something like that. So anyway, thank you so much for coming. Thank welcome. The
2: mic.
3: Me a D. 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 D.
0: D. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it always happens that about three to four to six months before we come here, Mark sends us a little email saying, Oh, and by the way, what's what's the title of your talk going to be? Or what's the topic of your talk going to be? And of course it's always the Dharma. It's always about mindfulness. It's always about how to uh, basically um, gain the benefit of awareness in your life, but you know, if you just say, "Oh, it's about the Dharma," as people could say, "Well, I've I've heard that one before. I'll, I'll wait till next time around." Well, oh, it's going to be about mindfulness. Yeah, well, I've, I've I've been there, done that. How about something else? So this time I said, "Okay,
3: <laughs>
0: we're going to talk about." Um, <clears throat> A feeling of well-being, which is the fruit of practice. And I came upon this uh, topic a couple of years ago, uh, for 30 years, I've been practicing in one tradition, uh, a Burmese tradition that is kind of the grandfather, or the grandfather tradition of a lot of uh, the Vipassana meditation teachers here in the West. And I've been practicing in this tradition for 30 years with a variety of different teachers. And of course, when you're when you're practicing and you know you're you're talking to your teachers about your practice, you you develop a certain language that you talk about your experiences with them. You know, in different teachers, you have a different language, and sometimes you're talking about awareness and calmness and insight and understanding and you know feeling balanced and you know, feeling whatever, stable. There's, there's just lots of descriptive words and ways that we talk about practice. And then a few years ago, I went back to Burma again and uh, went to try practicing with a different teacher who teaches a slightly different emphasis. Uh, the same basic Buddhist teachings of awareness, uh, you know. Keeping sila or practicing, living in harmony with one another, not harming one another, and the, the same the same practices, but just a slightly different emphasis. And after practicing with him for a few weeks, I was there for five weeks that time, uh, after, you know, somewhere in the middle of my stay, after three or four weeks, I started talking about this feeling of well-being. And when I used the word well-being, he didn't understand what I was saying. He understands a lot of English, but he does have a translator. And so the translator explained to him what I meant by well-being. Of course, I had to explain to her what I meant by well-being. And she translated it to him. And after he finally got it, he said, oh, right, well-being. Yeah, well, that's the purpose of practice. That's that's the fruit of practice. And I was surprised. Uh, it was uh, interesting to me because in all my prior 30 years, I never used the word a sense of well-being I'm talking about practice. I had a lot of other things to say calm and clear and insightful and you know balanced and this and this and open and blissful and joyful and this but never a sense of well-being and one of the distinctive, Qualities of a sense of well being is there's a certain stability in the mind that, you know, the mind is aware of uh, the range of experiences that we have in life. And as you know, some experiences in life are really pleasant and it's easy to enjoy them. Some experiences in life are not so pleasant and it is not easy to tolerate them. But when the sense of well-being is established through practice, your sense of well-being is not shaken by the pleasantness or unpleasantness or the degree of difficulty of what you're experiencing in your life, so that you can be dealing with a very unpleasant uh, situation at work or with your neighbor or with your spouse. It can be really unpleasant, but your sense of well being is not shaken. Now, wouldn't that be good? Think of it. Those unpleasant things that, that come in life, you know, uh, on a daily basis, or more unpleasant things that come. You know, once a decade, or certainly at the end of life, to have a have a stability of mind and an assurance about the way things are that didn't get rattled, even though it was unpleasant, challenging, very difficult to deal with, and, and not easily resolvable, and so. That's what I want to speak about tonight, this, this sense of well-being a little bit and how it uh, arises, but also how you can uh, recognize the conditions in your life that point to a sense of well-being. So course I have a multi-page talk here that I'm only going to use for reference uh, sometimes we look for pleasure in our life because pleasure is easy to enjoy but no amount of pleasure can ever accumulate to be called happiness happiness is a, is something different than just acquiring a lot more pleasure and I think for many of us in spiritual that have undertaken a spiritual practice there is an assumption somehow that our happiness is a, and, you know, and, and, and I, I even teach this. Hey, it's a do-it-yourself job. You know, medit- waking up is a do-it-yourself job. You, you really have to do your own work. You have to work with your own mind. You have to work with your own conditioning. You have to work with your own body. You have to work with your own strengths, limitations, challenges, and to, to really see within yourself how to, how to uh, accommodate the conditions of life. But in that understanding, there is often the assumption that, or a, an overlooking of the fact that we do this individual work in the midst of a community. We don't do it alone. Even though we do it alone, it's a do-it-yourself job. We do it in the midst of a community with the support of like-minded people, with, with teachers, with uh, instructors, with people to kind of commiserate with, and with those who offer opportunities to practice, those who support us in practice, and we can we can miss that. And so, it is more proper to think of the the development of a sense of well-being as a community affair. So, there are both the individual characteristics, the individual attributes, the communal uh, relationships that are important for a sense of well being. And then there's uh, really within our lives, we live in a much bigger community than just Minneapolis or just the Common Ground Dharma group. We live in, well, we live in the United States. And the United States is one of, you know, a couple hundred countries on the face of the earth. And if we don't, if, if the range of our sense of community doesn't include the whole earth, we may try to secure our happiness at the expense of others. And that will never be stable. And so, by definition, our practice has to include, our awareness has to expand to the size of the globe and actually in time to all eternity in order to act in a way that our heart is not, not going to feel like it is uh, stepping on the toes of anyone else really. Our heart, our mind is more sensitive than we are. I learned this from my teacher in uh, uh, Burma when I, I I lived there for many years in the monastery, and I was working with at that time I was working with the sidear, uh, an elder Burmese monk called. It was a side dog called Upandita, and he's very he's known to be a very demanding, rigorous, precise. Uh, teacher and when I would go in I'd be doing my practice you know and every day I'd have to go see him at 2 o'clock and talk about my practice for the last 24 hours and tell him what I was experiencing and I'd walk in you know and I'd give him my report and tell him what I was noticing and he'd say okay okay uh and sometimes he'd give me you know a little encouragement or a little instruction and then sometimes I'd come in I'd say something and he'd look at me and say is this also happening? And I'd say, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's also happening. He said, Well, why didn't you tell me? And I said, Well, I didn't think it was important. He said, Everything's important. And he did this often enough that I began to see that he knew what was going on in my mind, in my experience, better than I did. You know, I just kind of overlooked things, dismissed things, minimized things, just said, Oh, that's not important, that's not significant. And he would point it out to me time and time again. Is this happening too? Yes. That's Why didn't you tell me? You need to tell me these things so that I know what you're experiencing. <laughs> I now realised that he had an understanding of the mind that was far greater than mine. And because he had that understanding of mind, he knew the dangers uh, to someone whose mind had not yet opened to that. And so while I might be practicing and get to a place of calm and clarity and confidence and think, hey, this is it. This is really good. And come in and report to him, he'd say, Hmm, you know, sounds like trouble I had.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I'd say and I'd think, What the hell are you
3: talking
0: about? Sounds like it's going good to me. You know, and but that would that would it wouldn't throw me into doubt and fear. It would just make me pay attention a little more closely, and sure enough, I discovered that while calm and confident and clear is nice, it's not the end of the journey. And so, oh, in my looking a little more carefully, a little more closely, a little more continuously, I would discover additional sources of discontentment and suffering and, you know, uh, tension in the mind. I realized that he really, he has a vision, he has an understanding of what liberated mind is that I couldn't even imagine. And by working with him and and following his guidance, I was able to uh, discover suffering I didn't know I had and disentangle my heart from it. That's a good teacher. You should look for a teacher like that. Well, do you have a teacher like that? Someone who knows more than you do in that in that in that field, in that realm of the mind, in knowing where the mind gets hooked, where the mind gets caught. Because it is only through seeing the limitations of the mind, seeing the where the mind gets entangled, and for that you need to have the big view of the mind. I don't mean a big mind. When you have to have the experience of knowing the mind across a broad spectrum of experience and how it gets caught, where it gets caught. And having seen that, also discovering, finding a way to disentangle the mind. When the mind has, or as our understanding of the way things are in the mind, in our relationships, in our life, in the world, as our understanding of these conditions grows, Our values in life change and when your values in life change your priorities change and with this understanding you will make different decisions in your life and these different decisions will allow you to do well that's the benefit of practice to live with a sense of well-being because you really know the mind your heart You really know where you're getting caught, where you're limited, where you're open. And you know because you have traversed the terrain of the mind with the terrain of the heart. And you understand that. The Buddha was asked, and this is a a kind of a a checklist for uh, how much of a sense of well-being do you have? And the Buddha was asked by, uh, well, some... Heavenly beings, actually, but for the benefit of both humans and heavenly beings. What conditions in one's life are the source or the cause for happiness or a sense of well-being? So it's, it's, it's interesting to see what the Buddha points to as by saying that if these conditions are present in your life, you will have a sense of well-being, or you'll have a, a happiness beyond uh, shakeability, if you will. Well, there's 38, so uh, I just want—I just want to read them through, and then we're going to have a um, an audience participation extension of this talk, where <laughs> I'm going to read them and ask then ask you for uh, suggestion of which one you would like further uh, instruction and explanation of. And then depending on which one you pick, either Kamala or I will give you additional. Because <laughs> we could say that these are you know, both the, the, the signs of well-being in your life. But we could also say they're all a practice. They're all practices that, we, that any one of us could undertake in order to enhance and strengthen a sense of well-being in our life.
2: Not to associate
0: with foolish people. Well, if we had the choice, I mean, but we don't always. But anyway, not to associate with foolish people is the first a condition for happiness in your life. Pretty obvious, isn't it? And not, uh, and then to associate with the wise is also. And to honor the worthy. Now, you might think, now I'm just going to ask you just while you're just some spare time, who do you consider worthy? in your life. To reside in a suitable location. And what does that mean in Minneapolis? To have, to have done good deeds in the past, meaning to have done good karma in the past, therefore enjoying pleasant c- conditions now, which we all are. To uh, behave yourself. <laughs> well, he said to regulate oneself, oneself rightly, but that means to behave yourself. <laughs> to be well-spoken. Not well-spoken of, but to be well-spoken, to speak well. And there are five conditions for that. If you don't know, you can ask one of us and we'd be happy to be well. To be well-educated and knowledgeable, to be skilled in the handicrafts and sciences, to be well-trained and disciplined, to care for your mother and to care for your father well. To look after your partner, your spouse, your children, and to engage in a harmless occupation, to act in the world without harming others, to perform blameless actions, guilt-free, to be generous to your relatives, and to give selflessly, abstaining from evil and avoiding intoxicants. Avoiding intoxicants. Hmm. To be... What are intoxicants? It's just kind of going on the web and just kind of surfing for hours at a time, just kind of lost in your own uh, fantasy. Is that intoxicating? To be diligent in virtuous practices, to be reverent. What does that mean? To be reverent. Where in your life are you reverent? Uh, To be humble, to be content, to be grateful. To hear the Dharma at the right time. Here you are. To be patient. My lifetime practice. To be obedient. To visit with spiritual people. To visit with spiritual people. To discuss the Dharma at the right time. To live simply in this complicated world. (laughs) To live purely, to see the Noble Truths. You know what the Four Noble Truths are? Truth of Dukkha, suffering, pain, suffering, insecurity. Caused by craving, Second Noble Truth. There is the end of suffering. And the Fourth Noble Truth is the path to the end of suffering. There's four Dhammatons. To realize the liberated mind. And I want to speak briefly about that one. To cultivate a mind unshaken by the worldly conditions. The eight worldly conditions are praise and blame. Is your mind shaken when you get some praise or you get blamed? Not a source of happiness. Okay, so, to cultivate a mind unshaken by praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain.
3: Got
0: some room for improvement there. Okay, to be free of anxiety, to be pure, and to be secure and safe. Wow. You
3: know, there's a lot
0: of room for improvement there. Meaning, well, certainly in my life, so I'm only extrapolating to your life. So, uh, I'm not telling you, but I'm just guessing that there might be room for improvement, that,
3: you know, a
0: sense of well-being is in pretty ordinary, some are pretty ordinary common experiences like being educated, having a good job, being able to provide for your family, that's true, but some of the conditions for well-being, a sense of well-being are pretty high dharma, if you will, to realize the Four Noble Truths, to be liberated, to live secure. That means to live uh, secure in the knowledge of uh, uh, that your that your that your karma is headed in the right direction. Does anybody want to suggest uh, one of those topics for further discussion? Can you even remember? <laughs> <laughs> Do yeah.
3: one?
1: One was how to live without harm. particularly difficult for me on that is where to draw the boundaries. You mentioned the need for a, a global perspective at times. Yeah. And you know, we live in a society and it's much bigger than we are and we live in a culture. And then we live in a country and that happens to be very powerful and have a lot of influence. Yeah. There are times when all of us disagree with the action of the greater society and the country. And is that living, you know, truly
0: without harming others, or, or are we just responsible for our own immediate behavior? It's, it's a hard question. What an entree into my, my latest kick. <laughs> okay, here it is. Uh, you know what? We live in a democracy. The vast majority of the people in the world do not. And for all of its strengths and weaknesses and limitations, we get a chance to participate in the direction that our society goes. And because the U.S. is such a powerful uh, player on the world stage, our individual involvement in the process is also equally powerful. It is, let me be clear, it is an ethical responsibility to participate in the government of this country. Why? Because it is a major player in the world, and as you know, it's not always acting in the best interests of everyone. And it causes a lot of harm at times. We can justify it, we can rationalize it, but nevertheless it's still a fact. And that a lot of what could be done to enhance the well-being of citizens in this country and uh, other Uh, humans and other uh, creatures living on the face of the earth that could be uh, encouraged by or enhanced by uh, activities of this government, um, we should consider that. Just how might we enhance the well-being of just the citizens here? And would it be possible? Is it possible? How is it possible? And to uh, understand that If our happiness is dependent on suppressing or depressing or oppressing others, can we genuinely be happy? I don't think so. Only if we're blind. But this is a practice of waking up. This is a practice of coming out of denial. Coming out of uh, avoiding the facts of life. This This is a practice that wants to see this is the way it is. Not only this is the way it is in my body, in my mind, but this is the way it is in my relationship, this is the way it is in my government, this is the way it is in the world, this is the way it is in the environment. Let's take it out of the political realm, let's just take it into the environmental realm. That, surely that can't be very political. That's science, right? Okay. You know, we had an interesting discussion at the retreat, just uh, a question the other day. Somebody was saying, well, what about eating meat? You know, is that ethical? And, you know, I didn't kill the animal, but I'm eating the meat. and uh, the meat delivery system uh, in our supermarket, of course, relies on the killing of animals. And we had you know, a, a, a wide-ranging discussion and considered a lot of uh, the, the, the facts. And then kind was of saying, well, what about, what about other things that we do that uh, have an effect on creatures? You know, All global warming is having a profound effect on creatures all over the world. Are we doing anything to uh, contribute to global warming? Or are we individually or nationally doing anything to minimize global warming and therefore the impact of harming other creatures on the face of the earth? Well, that really expands the field of ethical consideration a lot from not just me and how I'm treating my dog, my pet, my partner, my kids, my neighbors, to, you know. How many miles per gallon does my car get because it's influencing creatures all over the face of the earth? So I don't have the answer for you. But what I'm suggesting is that in this practice of mindful awareness, we should not shy away from awareness of this larger situation that we find ourselves in. Yes, we want to do our own work, we want to, you know, we want to get in touch with our own mind, our own body, our own reactive reactivity, in our own neighborhood, our own family, our own relationships. But we also don't want to dismiss and deny that we live in a global community. How's that for not answering your question? I mean, I think it just puts it in context a little bit. Another question? Yeah. Can you talk more about the um, right speech? Could we talk more about right speech? We have to speak to do that, so let's be, Let's hope we can speak rightly.
3: Do you want to say anything? Put
0: the context, and I have one thing to say. <laughs> okay, I have five things to say about right speech. She has one thing to say. Now you listen to the, see who's got right speech, okay?
3: Uh,
0: there are many conditions for right speech. The Buddha, the Buddha taught that there are many uh, conditions to, to ways of considering whether speech is right, meaning right, meaning correct, non-harmful, like that. And of course, as you know, right speech is one of the eight factors in the Noble Path. Eightfold Noble Path. It's 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 got a high pedigree. Meaning it's it's a very important in our uh, awakening. To really pay careful attention as to how we speak, and one of the first, mm, one of the first uh, conditions for right speech is that we speak the truth. Well, if you haven't discovered that that's a practice, take a look. I mean, let me ask you this. Let, let me just, let me just do a quick survey. How many here, how many of you here, have made a vow in your life to always speak the truth? Always speak the truth. Okay. And how many of you are liars?
3: <laughs>
0: okay. Well, that just shows you all the gray area in between. Think about it. If we haven't made a commitment and really made it a practice to try to speak the truth, then that means we're willing to fib, if not outright lie, when it's convenient. Well, that may be uh socially acceptable and make social relationships smooth but it may not be good enough to wake up for waking up and for realizing the liberated mind and for truly developing a sense of well-being huh. okay now we have a choice and we're going to take on the responsibility and burden and practice of always telling the truth even though i might initially find it unpleasant but ultimately find it conducive to a sense of well-being, or am I just going to keep doing what I'm doing? Now that I've asked the question, you all have to answer it. Second condition for right speech is, when we speak, and sometimes we have to speak difficult stuff, You know, we have to say difficult things, is to speak uh, not only the truth, but to speak from a place of loving kindness and compassion, so that we're, we're, we're at least, even if we have to say something very difficult to someone, we can keep them in our mind with care. Uh, So we can speak coming from a caring place. Thirdly, is to speak gently, because sometimes just the tone and the volume of what we got to say is really harsh. Really, you know, it conveys more of the message than the content of the word. So, to speak the truth from a place of loving kindness or compassion, gently. A fourth condition for right speech is to speak only that which is beneficial. Only that which is beneficial, meaning that there's some benefit, there's some some good reason for saying what you're going to say. Now, this is an interesting um, uh, condition because the opposite of beneficial speech is called in the Pali language, sampapalapawada. Which means just kind of foolishness, gossip, dribble. It's just kind of like it's just kind of blah 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 blah. You know, talking this, you know, and we fill our minds with hours and hours of well, unbeneficial words. What does that? That doesn't. That doesn't have no effect on your mind. It has an effect on your mind. What is the effect of useless gossip? frivolous chit-chat on your sense of well-being. Well, it doesn't enhance it. And the fifth condition for uh, right speech is mm-hmm. to speak not only the truth from a place of loving kindness, gently what that which is beneficial, but at the appropriate time, which may be the hardest condition to fulfill. Because when you're angry, you don't want to wait for the right time. You want to get it out now. But that doesn't often communicate what you really want to say. So now we'll let Kamala give you an example of right speech.
2: There were two uh, stories that really affected me. And one was something that I was involved in. When I was a yogi, a meditator with my teacher, Upandita, for the first time at a long retreat, some of you have heard this already, but it has a a lot of um, usefulness, so I'll say it again. Uh, He asked everybody to come in and tell the truth about their experience. So the first part of the retreat, we were having group interviews. And there were several of us in the room. And various others in the group were reporting that they had long sittings, that they could be continuously with the breath, for you know almost the whole day that they were walking many many hours a day and and the Sayadaw, the teacher knew that this couldn't possibly be true. Even for experienced meditators, we always have, you know, some places where there there are gaps and you have to rev up again in your practice. So um, he gave a Dharma talk that evening and I had reported in the afternoon, I had reported what was going on with me but it wasn't, it was just like it was, you know, that it was difficult and I was falling asleep and um, there were many times I wasn't mindful and so in the Dharma talk that evening, he said, in this practice we are learning how to understand the truth of life, to see the truth within ourselves." How can you realize the truth if you can't tell the truth? And he said, all of those who have not spoken truthfully to me this afternoon, and not just truthfully, but who have not spoken precisely, I want everyone to come to my room after this Dharma talk and tell me that they haven't spoken truthfully. And to be truthful about that, because he He didn't want to instruct anyone who would not um, honor that precept of telling the truth. And I learned that before the Buddha became a Buddha, during all his eons and world cycles of developing the good qualities of his heart and of his mind, that he could break every single precept during the multi, multi lifetimes that he lived to develop the good qualities of his mind and his heart. But in all those um, beyond our reckoning lifetimes, he never broke that uh, precept of telling, not telling the truth. He always kept that. That's how important that precept is, to always tell the truth. And in the various ways that Steve spoke about, at the right time, with the right tone, um, not frivolously. So this, this is a very serious um, area in our lives. And so to be not just truthful, but to be really precise about what we're saying um, really helps us to be precise about what we're seeing in our hearts, in our minds. And there was another story that my girlfriend told me. She's actually written a dissertation on right speech to get her doctorate degree. And she came across this story in in her culture. She's a Jewish person. And she told me the story of a rabbi who had someone in his community speaking um, an untruth about this rabbi. And so this is not, um, in in all cultures, to speak unkindly of someone, a religious person in your community, this is um, not very good, of course. It's one Mm -hmm. of the um, most sinful things you could do, in a way. because this person has a trust of a lot of people. And so uh, the person who spoke against the rabbi finally realized his mistake and went to the rabbi and said, I'm very sorry for what I've done. And uh, the rabbi said, that's all right. You know, now have you learned your lesson? And the man said, I think so. And what can I do to atone for my sin, so to speak? And the rabbi said, I want you to take this feather pillow and um, rip the feather pillow open and distribute all the feathers throughout this community and town. And so the man said, Oh, great, you know, I'll do that. So he did that. He distributed, he just threw the feathers all around town and he went back to the rabbi and he said, I've done it, I've done it. And so now I'm completely forgiven, correct? And the rabbi said, well, you're forgiven, but your your journey isn't done yet. I'd like you to go out and collect every single one of those feathers and put them back in the pillow. And the man said, oh, that's really, you know, that's impossible to do. And so in that moment, he really realized what he had done that once something goes out, you just can't go back and take it back. So that really affected me. And that made me a lot more conscious of what am I, what am I saying? To whom I am saying this? Am I using words that are really precise? Am I using words that could be misinterpreted? Um, if they can be, then don't even say anything. So. Stories like that go far in our understanding. So, any other areas? Maybe Steve likes to um, re-mention a few. Yeah,
0: unless you felt one, yeah.
3: Um, was it being generous to your relatives? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Let's see. Which one is that? It says, "Did uh, uh, you want <coughs> to America America. be generous to your
2: relatives?"
0: Yeah, to be generous to your relatives and to give selflessly. And then the other one was mm-hmm. to um, to look after your partners, your spouse, and children, family members, which would include looking after them financially. But to be generous with your relatives and to give selflessly to others than your relatives. Oh, okay. I,
3: thought, I was wondering why just your relatives?
0: Oh, not just your relatives, but sometimes they may be the hardest ones to give to. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. How about dealing with foolish
3: people?
0: Dealing with dealing with foolish people? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to comment on that, but let me just address this one first. Uh, dealing with foolish people, um, or not to associate with foolish people. The Buddha was very uh, clear in his uh, instruction for how to really work with the mind, work with taming the mind, and he said, to the extent possible, to avoid going to those places, doing those activities, and associating with those people that cause you to have a really unwholesome mind. Mm-hmm. If you go somewhere and you, you know, or you're dealing with someone and you always get angry or desirous or, you know, proud or fitful or depressed or whatever. You know what? If you can, avoid those places. Save yourself the trouble. Okay? Just don't put yourself in that position that's going to provoke those states of mind that are so unwholesome karmically and are sure to produce unpleasant results. On the other hand, he said, you know what? Sometimes you you cannot avoid those situations. They're in your face. They come up. You know, you don't go to them, they come to you, and there it is. When that happens, then uh, try to... He listed several things to do. One is to uh, minimize your time. Minimize your time with those situations, and uh, or with those people. And while you are with them, to be mindful to be really mindful of of your speech, how you're feeling and watch, guide your mind, meaning, you know, as you're talking with that person or as you're engaged in that behavior with that person or whatever it is that you have to do with with those people, it's watch your mind. Watch what's going on in your mind. You may be doing things out here, you know, whatever, but watch what's coming up in your mind. Is there greed in the mind? Is there aversion in the mind? Is there frustration in the mind? Is there pride in the mind? Is there, what is there? Because that's that's your karmic uh, burden. You're going to have to live with that. So even when you have to deal with foolish people, and there are some, uh, you know, then uh, to 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 be really uh, pay, pay attention to minimize your time, and then to kind of clean your heart after you've been with them. You know, spend some time just kind of really being with your mind, being with your heart to to. Uh, wash it through, if you will. Interestingly, just let me just comment that uh, we we've been translating and, and editing a book uh, written by like the grandfather of this tradition that we teach in uh, from Burma, and um, in it he you know he he's, it's a it's a whole big book a manual on practicing insight, and uh, in it he, he he in one paragraph he just lists these sixteen or eighteen practices. To, to kind of like preliminary practices before you practice insight. You know. And I'd never heard of these, and I'd never seen them, but I read through them. And, and one of them was, listen to this, to, uh, if you have ever offended an enlightened person, to, whether you know that they're enlightened or not, to apologize if possible or to make amends. Now think about that. How do you know if you've offended an enlightened person? You don't know. You know. I mean, enlightened people don't don't go around with halos, you know, and they, they don't have those badges that says I am enlightened, please don't offend me. You know, <laughs> there's, there's no such thing. It's like, you know, they have maybe a little more generous heart, a little more loving, a little more clear, a little more understanding. Well, actually, a lot more loving, a lot more generous <laughs> love. But we may not know that. And so, what this preliminary practice is? It's really is... If you have offended anyone, if you have intentionally offended, slandered, whatever, then make amends. If possible, make amends to them, to a a preceptor, a confessor, if you will, or uh, at least to yourself. That's how important it is because when we act in that way, you know, saying you're a foolish person, I don't want to associate with you, for example, uh, in our heart, we say that. that. That does something to our heart, let alone to that person whether we say it or not, but to our heart. It does something to our heart. So in order to open the heart fully, we're going to have to come upon that, the pain that that, that kind of behavior causes to our heart, and we're going to have to deal with it. And one of the ways that we, we really harm... oh, Let's say we don't take the opportunity to benefit others is by practicing generosity, not taking the opportunity to practice generosity. Now, you uh, Let's face it, we live in America, Uh, we all have, I mean, I see you're all healthy enough to be here tonight, you all have the leisure time to be here and practice the downward to some degree, and you all look pretty well fed, you know, you are among the elite of human beings on the face of this earth, living at the top of the heap, no matter how bad it is for you, you are living at the very top of the heap. What do you mean you can't be generous? You can't find an opportunity to practice? Of course we can. We have so much. We live in abundance. We just have we're just drowning in abundance. No matter how little you have. And there are just infinite opportunities to share what we have, whether it's material goods or time or knowledge or compassion with others. And there is an infinite need uh, among others, among other beings, among other humans, for anything that you can offer. And practicing generosity is the easiest way to feel good about yourself and to be happy. Even if you just give a dog a bone and you see that tail wag, you'll be happy. Just think what it would be if you give something to a human being. want to be happy? Give something away every day. Something, anything. On the way coming over. We were flying in. We were transferring in Denver. Yeah, Denver. And it was early morning, and we just flew in from San Francisco. He was coming over here. And I wanted to get a newspaper because we had a delay in Denver. He's we going to be there for three hours or something. I said, oh, "I'll get a newspaper." So I went. I saw the took a dollar, but I needed four quarters. I went to the nearby little kiosk where they sell, you know, sodas and waters and, you know, chips and stuff like that. And there was a couple of people in line, and I was waiting for the for them to finish so I could get four quarters so I could go get the newspaper. So. This one woman, she had gotten uh, a bunch of you know, banana and bag of chips and, this and a few other things. It came to $16 something. So she gave him a credit card. They swiped the card, rejected. trying to again. Swiped the card, rejected. She gave him another credit card. They swiped the card, rejected. She said, oh, uh, let me get some money. So she reached in her pocketbook, rummaging around for money. She didn't have $16 in cash. By this time, you know, the newspaper was almost yesterday's. So I said, <laughs> I took $20 out of my wallet and I said, here, I'd like to pay for this lady. And by the way, I'd like four quarters and change. <laughs> and so they looked at me like, what? You know, like I was holding them up or something. I said,
3: no, no, no. I just, you know, I'd, I'd
0: like to pay, pay for this lady. She doesn't have doesn't have the cash, and she's going to need that cash later. And she says, oh wait, no, no, no. I mean, and she tried to put back her banana. I said, no, you might need that banana. You thought you needed it. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it. No. And, you know, so I got my change got my change, including four quarters. I went over to the newspaper machine to get the New York Times. And by the way, I was just checked the door just to see if I could. But, you know, I was being generous. I was, just, I, was just, I was just seeing if they were going to be generous today. And sure enough, I pulled down the door. Didn't have to put any money in. There was a whole stack of newspapers in there, so I took one. Yeah, and then I put my money in. <laughs> you know, and I closed the door, and it was still—it's just like you know, you could just open and close it at will. You know, I told Kamala the story. She said, "Instant karma."
3: <laughs> I tell you,
0: how generosity is. Really, really makes you happy. And it did feel good to have given that, to bought that thing for somebody I don't know. And she probably was kinda of got a rush and by by the time we left the counter the three people that were working out back it had also come out kinda of looking at me like What are you doing paying for somebody else and
3: like this? Any other Yeah. Thank you. I you.
0: Praise and blame. Yeah. Wow, this one here says to cultivate a mind. Number thirty-five. Just to keep you. Number thirty-five. To cultivate a mind unshaken by the worldly conditions. Now, the worldly conditions are what are called. What are they called?
2: The eight vicissitudes. Yeah, the eight
0: vicissitudes of life. The eight lokadamas, and these are eight conditions that everyone experiences at some time in their life. Praise, and blame. Right? You've been praised. You've been blamed. Gain and loss. Sometimes we uh, win on the market, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we gain, sometimes we lose. In whatever, whether it's playing sports or investing money or relationships, gain and loss. Um, gain and loss. Pleasure and pain. We all experience pleasure. We all experience pain. And fame and disrepute. You know, sometimes you, you know, uh, you do something and you get some kind of renown. Sometimes you get a little bit of uh, re-unknown disrepute. And we all experience those things. Now, because they're going to come independent of your practice, then to be able to develop a mind that is uh, stable in the face of praise or blame, that doesn't get elated with the praise and depressed with the blame. Or doesn't get elated with pleasurable experience and depressed with painful experience. To develop that stability of mind. Do you want to talk about it? Mm-hmm. Talk Did story? you have
2: anything in particular about praise and blame? Um, yeah. I yeah. Do you want I, I I like like to? You
3: know, and I think you're doing what not I've noticed in this trying
2: to get that When something's pointed out to you, you have the response, oh, this is so awful. Yeah, I'm awful. wrong. Yeah, I'm wrong. Okay.
3: i should have known better. I should have done it.
2: Okay, so are you taking it in as blame when it might not be? Is that a possibility too? Yeah, okay. So all of this, uh, it has to do with um, developing a mind of equanimity. The opposite is reactivity. So what you're talking about is when something happens uh, around us or to us, and our minds react to the situation. So whether it's blame or not, the fact is that the mind is reacting to it, right? Yeah. So to develop a mind that doesn't react requires really first looking at our minds and seeing what's happening inside. And when we see that reactivity inside, like you mentioned, this is the way you feel when it happens. One of the first things we can do, if we're not dealing so much with what's going on outside, but like you say, you notice what's going on inside, is to bring a sense of acceptance and balance to what you just felt, the fact that, oh, I feel I feel bad about this. That's the reactivity to what's going on outside. And to have a sense of caring, spacious balance about it. So you just give it a lot of space in the moment to be, to, to let it be known, to carefully bring attention to it, but a lot of space around it and within that space some balance so that you're not... Um, there's not an opportunity for another reactivity to take place, which means that you're already feeling bad. And then you can feel bad about feeling bad. Oh, I'm not supposed to feel this way. You know, it, it begins to add layer upon layer. We call the first feeling bad, you know, like the first arrow hits us. And the second feeling bad, feeling bad about feeling bad, or feeling aversive to feeling bad, that's the second arrow where we just hurt ourselves again by not seeing what's going on. So by bringing some sense of balance to it, it's like just saying to ourselves in a caring, spacious way, this is how it is in my heart right now. And that that's a practice of equanimity. Another way that we can handle it almost simultaneously is when a person's talking to us in such and such way, and we know that we frequently or habitually have um, a reactive response to maybe a particular person or a particular situation, that we can bring a sense of equanimity to that situation or about that situation as well. So, for example, um, I'll take Steve and me, for example. I'm not going to say anything about that. Don't worry. But, um, praise. <laughs> Steve has a very sharp mind. And he gets identified with the praise now. That's being identified with the praise. That's having reactivity to the praise,
3: which is attachment. <laughs> the reactivity
2: to praise is attachment. But in that sharpness of mind, he can have a very sharp tongue. And that's the reactivity of aversion. And Steve, among all the personality types in Buddhist psychology, is the aversive type. So it's really easy to see aversion with Steve. And so not only, not only do I... But that's the way it is. That's, he's the aversive personality, I'm the greedy type personality, I want things to do a certain way, he does not want things in such ways, you know, that's, it's You want
0: things in all ways, not
3: that.
0: <laughs> That's a greedy type, I don't want just one, I want them all, and I don't want any.
2: So, um... It's just how it is with our type. and we can laugh about it sometimes and sometimes,
0: so the sometimes is the operative word there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> when it comes up for him and he gets that way, then I can say, Oh, that's the way it is with Steve. You know? That's that's that personality type. And I don't I don't have to like take it on. It's hard to do, you know, when it's somebody close to you. But I don't have to take it on. I can, if I can catch it there, I can say, oh, that's the way Steve is, or "Mm, he's had a hard day, or, you know, even something just very temporarily situational, and then if I'm still having a reaction, if I haven't really had a big reaction, but then I, I start noticing it's coming, then from understanding, oh, that's the way it is with Steve right now, and I see that something, some prickly stuff is coming up in my own heart, I can turn that equanimity practice to my own heart and say, this is the way it is in my heart right now, too. In, in both cases, I'm consciously trying to bring a sense of balance and spaciousness to it. So that happens with all the praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow. The, when there's joy, the reactivity is to get attached to it. When there's sorrow or um, pain, pleasure pain, the reactivity is to get averse to it. When there's praise and blame, we talked about that. When there's fame and disrepute, fame, we can get attached to it. Disrepute, we can be aversive to it. So those are the various uh, reactivities to those particular um situations that everyone ha- everyone faces them in the world, not just ourselves. So what happens is we just take it so personally. And um, when we take it so personally, there's no room to really resolve things. So we just did a whole week of, of equanimity practice. And it, and it does, for those of you who are there, you know... It takes a lot to understand. It takes a lot of practice to understand how how our hearts are with everything, where we are equanimous and where we react. It's it's not just understanding it in in a few moments and then working with it. There's many layers.
0: I got a, I got a short story about praise and blame. <clears throat> Being in the in the role that we're in, giving. Uh, dharma talks and teaching and, and things like that. <coughs> often when we give, you know, especially at the, it seems like the three month course. We we we've taught the three the annual three month retreat for a number of years. And especially there, you're with you with students for three months and they get to know you pretty well. And there's usually five or six teachers and so there's you know there's a dharma talk every night. <coughs> and often I mean we have to we have to write a lot of new talks, you know, just to kind of come up with new talks. And so sometimes if a talk is particularly good, you'll get a couple of yogis that just kinda of write a note, hey that was great, one of your best talks, okay, you know, so you can feel a little good about that. And often, you know, in at least every talk I've ever given, there's somebody in the audience that finds something to kinda of, eh, 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 kinda of be snarly about. And some of them write notes and say by the way, that, when you said well, you know I didn't like that, and I don't think that's true, and I want to talk to you about that, you know, so you get a little bit of blame. Well, a few years ago, I was on a, on a on a roll, and I wrote this talk, and I gave this talk, and you know, after giving the talk, I come out and we talk, the teachers talk for a while, and you know, later on, I would I would go by the bulletin board and, and see my clip where people had. Put up all the notes, and that one talk I got so many notes of praise. It was unbelievable. It was just more notes of praise than any other talk I'd ever given. So I was feeling pretty balanced. <laughs> 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 and, and I was thinking, "Oh, all right, all right, you know." So that was all right. Then <clears throat> a couple days later, we had our, our weekly teacher meeting. And all the yogis who were critical of my talk had gone to their other teachers and spoken to them. So all the teachers at the teacher meeting were criticizing me for giving the talk. So I got more praise and more blame for that one talk than any other. Which just goes to show praise and blame. It's like, why should we be, why should our happiness or our sense of well being? be jerked around by praise and blame when it's so, well, ephemeral, it's so, you know, subjective, it's so individual. It's like, it doesn't really uh, need to, or we need to, we need to learn how to stabilize our hearts so that we're not shaken by praise or blame. Yeah.
2: Um, The way I've been taught is that, I get praise or blame. It has nothing to do with me, only the person giving. And they're
3: like, Yeah, liked.
0: yeah okay. I think that's a good I think that's a good reflection that often praise and blame has more to do with the person offering it than the target of of, of it. Nevertheless, the person who is the target receiving it has got to deal with uh, you know, the feeling or the energy of praise coming at you, which is hard to kind of just kind of not indulge in and to not be defensive about blame even though even though we might rationally understand, wow, that person is really on a you know, they're really in a inflated state, or they're really in a adoring state, or they're really in a aversive state. We may know that, but we still feel and our mind gets shaken by it, so we done <laughs>
1: Come
0: on! I was just having a conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> was it praise or blame? <laughs> Maybe time for one more. Okay. Is there another? Uh, you could. There are thirty-eight of them here. So if you can't remember one that you want to talk about, you just pick a number.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and if we've already done that one, we'll
0: pick another one. Any other? Uh,
3: yeah.
0: Obedience. Obedience. Hey, that's a good one. You know, in our culture. You know, to be obedient is like, woo. I mean, when I when I said that, when I said to be obedient, what did you think?
3: I said, well, let's not let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not talk about that one. <laughs> okay. Now, why? Um, yeah, it's the, the connotations, you know. It's like, it's like a police officer, you know, or in the military. Yeah.
0: Know. So you don't want to be obedient. Um, Maybe. Maybe. Being obedient is like the same as being under control of somebody else. Ah, yeah, now that's how I first heard it too. Being, you know, being obedient is like being commanded to be obedient is like, you know, being under control and being, you know, bound and just kind of like... And it would be hard to feel that you had a a, a nice sense of well-being and felt really happy with that. But I, I, I had to look at this one really carefully when I first read this and said, well what is the Buddha saying? The Buddha is saying to be obedient is a condition for or supports your sense of well-being. If you are able to be obedient, if you are in a situation where to be obedient is possible, useful, and right, that will be a source of, well- of well-being and happiness to you. So I think the way I the way I Took this was, what if you lived in, uh, you know, you lived in a country where, you know, uh, the government was corrupt.
3: <laughs> I mean, the roughest countries
0: in the world, you know, and 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 to get anything done, you had to you had to you had to act illegally. I mean, you know, we go to Burma a lot. Burma is totally corrupt. I mean, it's just unbelievably corrupt. You just and everybody knows it, and everybody's on the is, and everybody's you know that's that's normal. That's just the way it is. You just walk behind the counter with the you know the government official. You drop the envelope in his top drawer that's uh, slightly held open and closes it, and then you will sign your paper. It's just that is the way it's done. Well, when you do that, you 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 your heart buys into you know. Uh, Cheating, it buys into deception. It buys into you know that insecurity of like, is this okay? Am I going to get caught? And, 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 you know, because even though everybody does it, it's still illegal. You know, and so you can't be obedient, and therefore you 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 are definitely going to be insecure, unstable, frightened, deceptive, and all that. So I took it to be, if you're if you live in a certain situation or in conditions where you cannot be obedient. Then that that's going to destabilize your happiness. But if you are in a situation where you can be obedient, meaning you know you live in a, a rightly self-regulated country and a you know neighborhood and in your and your family and finances and all that, then great. If you live in a in a rational and fair society, great. You know that will be a source of happiness and well-being for you. So I also had the same reaction to to be obedient. Who, who well, don't tell me what to do. I mean, I, I must say I got a real strong piece of that. Don't tell me what to do. You know, like I don't want to be obedient because you told me to do. I I have to do it. But if if on the other hand, within the realm of law and what's needed and has you know has to be done, if if it's rational, if it's logical, if it's doable, then I would like to be obedient because I know that that will be. A source of uh, integrity, living with integrity for myself. Do you see? That's called spin. <laughs> but it's also true.
2: So for me, I take it in the context of the time of the Buddha and when he lived, and also that. Because I was born in an Asian country, and I understand a little bit about what it means when somebody's elder, older than you, 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 you take their advice, and you're obedient to that because they have more wisdom. And so in the culture that I come from, we, when we meet somebody new in the same community of the same culture, we even ask each other, when were you born? How old are you? if the person is even six months older than me, I address that person in a certain way. And I end my sentence to that person if I'm um, speaking in my original dialect Filipino, which I've forgotten a lot of. But I still end with a a certain way out of respect. And so there's a lot of respect for elders in, in that tradition, in the tradition that the Buddha was born in, and even when I go to India now, the Buddha was from India. That I go to households like Manindraji, my uh, teacher's house, and their tradition is to whatever whatever they ask me about something, and whatever I say, they they really try to listen. They try to because I'm their elder in the Dharma. It's a really interesting thing. Even his brother feels like I'm elder to him in the Dharma. And so they touch the feet of their elders that way. And so they they have this reverence and this respect for their elders. And um, obedience means that, that kind of respect for your elders and the experience that they've been through. So I'm taking I, this in the context of the Buddha's time the Buddhist culture also, yeah.
0: And, and a comment on the synthesis of what I said and what she said is when I was practicing again with my teacher, Upandita, in Burma, he is uh, the type of teacher who, who who knows himself to be an authority. And if you're there as a student, He expects you to be uh, uh, to respect his authority, and when he when he says something, you know, to do something, or you know, in your practice, to do something, he expects you to obey. And for for many of us, that's that's a difficult relationship to be in to just to just obey, you know, do as I say because I'm the authority, I'm your teacher, I'm your superior, I'm your preceptor, I'm your whatever. And but what makes it what makes it a source of uh, happiness or uh, or a sense of well-being in your life is when you can absolutely trust the person you have to obey if you had absolutely no doubt that you could trust anything they said anything they asked of you anything if you had no doubt about it and you could then then you would feel like you could obey and it would be a great source of of happiness and well-being for you that's not so that's not so common in in the west or Outside of a very intimate and trusting uh, relationship, but uh, it is possible. Well, you know what? There's, there's, talking about the, the causes and sources of well-being and how to establish it and practice it is, is endless. And uh, well, we only come once a year, but Mark is here teaching how to establish this in your life year-round. So uh, if you need more. Uh, suggestion, encouragement, instruction, guidance. Here's your man. Thanks so much. We've we've seen we've seen this community we've seen this community grow in and he, he, we've seen this community grow in both in numbers, in interest, in enthusiasm, in depth of, of faith, and depth of knowledge, depth of practice, and overall the overall sense of well-being of this community is tremendous. You uh, know, I think you know it, and we just want to confirm that we see it also. And uh, it's, it's uh, due in large part, or not in small part, to Mark's commitment to his own practice and to the integrity of the teaching of the Buddha in his own practice in teaching them. And his wife, when. and, of course, I know there's many of you that uh, participate here. I see the list of volunteers, and I'm so envious. <laughs> you have a huge list of volunteers that help take care of everything here, and uh, that's really, really wonderful. You're lucky.
1: (coughs) Thank you so much, Kamala and Steve, for coming. Thank you for everybody.
3: We really appreciate you being here. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Seed